Plan your work and work your plan. For many athletes, words like these are scripture. Permanent signposts lining the long road to success. The very act of pursuing a career in sports gives a sense of control, a sense of safety. Just stick to the plan, good things will follow. That is, until life hits you. The kind of life that happens when you're making other plans. Devastating setbacks, seemingly mundane moments. When things change unexpectedly and catch you without looking. Then the first question becomes, what's your next play? From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. How that all came about is uh, I was uh, moving stuff into the garage, uh, organizing the garage, just kind of killing some time before we had to go to the game and, and came across some wine and I thought, well, I can just try it, right? Just like a lot of alcoholics think they can. And uh, it wasn't so bad when I was drinking it, but then it hit me, obviously, just like alcohol does. Um, and that's, yeah, that's when I got pulled over and DUI and thrown in jail. Turn it on and place your hands on your back. You're under arrest for DWI. Oh, yep. Wait, wait, wait. yep. That's on your back. That's on your back. You know, for the longest time, when I first came out, I, I, I'd get freaked out by any kind of cop lights or anything like that. And uh, I, it just, it haunted me. Yeah, it's, it's terrifying. On this episode of Blindsided, we welcome Daryl Sidor. Daryl's a current co-owner of the Western Hockey League's Kamloops Blazers. Before that, he was a defenseman in the National Hockey League. He won two Stanley Cups. His first was with the Dallas Stars in 1999, and his second was with the Tampa Bay Lightning. But throughout Daryl's NHL career, he struggled with body image issues. He developed an eating disorder while playing for the Los Angeles Kings. And when his playing career ended, he started to drink. His addiction to alcohol caught up to him. Daryl's interview is real, raw, open, and told with care. Here's Daryl Sidor on Blindsided. I want to start out by asking you a little bit about your childhood, your er earliest years. What was it like growing up in your house? Oh, getting right into it. Um, <clears throat> growing up in uh, in my house, well, you know, I, I, I obviously often look back at it. And uh, being through the treatment centers, I've been through it quite a bit. You know, looking back, uh, a very loving family that uh, supported the kids um, me and my sister, you know, at a young age, um, both parents were just hard workers. And, uh, you know, at a young age, I was started to get into sports and have my direction that way. But without, without their knowledge, um, in a loving way of theirs, um, you know, I was pushed quite hard. 
you know, being able to look back at it now and understand. When you say without their knowledge, what, what do you mean by that? Well, my mother and father, and I can't characterize other mother and fathers, but um, they had a certain way that they got brought up and they were raising the kids to the best of their ability. Now, when I have my kids and I'm raising my kids, I look at it differently um, because I understand um, the mental side of it. Do you think they didn't understand the mental side of it when you were growing up? Um, yeah, I don't think so, to be honest with you. Um, you know, they're both, uh, like I said earlier, hard workers. Grew up on the farm, so it's a lot of hard work. Big families. Uh, you had to fight at the table, to, not fight at the table, but to get your food. Um, it was just a different way of of living. Um, you know, my dad's 82 years old right now, and um, he's still working, you know, his ass off. I'm not sure if I can say that word. But, you know, he's, he's still working, working, working hard. And, uh, you know, mental health wasn't a big thing back then. You didn't hear about it as a, as a child. You know, like I do now with my children, um, I hear like anxiety, OCD, and all that. And my one son is at 12 years old, diagnosed. I probably was too. But it was just, you know, the term I heard a lot was just suck it up and keep going. So if we were looking at the 10 or 12-year-old Daryl, what would we have seen? A pudgy kid. (laughs) 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 Um, You know, uh, 10 or 12 years old, probably a focused kid on sports, not so much on school. Um, I had a drive to succeed because that's the only way that I thought I can get any kind of, um, I guess, credit was to succeed. Um, to get any kind of positiveness was, uh, failure was not an option. Can you tell me when you say the only way to get any positiveness was to succeed, does that mean that you were living in an environment, whether at home or your school environment, where you didn't get that positive feedback? Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, because there's, there's a lot of memories that I've had to go through that if I look at positive things, it was more the negative that was microscoped compared to the positive that was microscoped and said, you know, good job there. It was, it was more of what, what happened there? Why couldn't you do this or that? Did anyone in your family, because you've mentioned your own mental health challenges, that of your son, and that often suggests that there is a familial aspect to that. This is something that's in your family. Did any of your family members as you were a young person, do you think, struggle with mental illness, substance use, Well, I mean, you know, once again, uh, if I look back now, you know, back then, I don't, and I don't know, you would maybe have more of an understanding of numbers and stuff like that back in 1975, 80, uh, were there high numbers of substance abuse? I'm not sure if it was calculated. If I look back now at my family, yeah, there's, there's a problem with substance abuse, you know? 
with, uh, with alcohol. You know, I look back at my upbringing of what would kind of go on a daily basis. And yeah, you know, I would say there, there was, you know, addiction involved with not knowing any different. Can you tell me a little bit about it, Daryl, what it was like growing up with that addiction going on and as, as a young person, what that experience was like? Well, um, you know, I don't really know. It was just always in my face. It was always in my eyes. Every family gathering, every, um, you know, my father would have his friends over. Um, There's drinks available. You know, my mom would come home from work. She was a banker. Mm, Stressful day. And she'd have a few beers. So, but then, you know, I just thought it was the norm. But after understanding and learning more about uh, mental health and addiction, that's not the norm. I grew up in Calgary. The prairie drinking culture for kids and that, I mean, has that changed at all? But do you remember, like, we were all, and then it it just kind of transferred over into junior hockey and then over into the NHL. Like, our generation said, we were all drinkers. That generation of player, you know, alcohol was, was what was the norm. I mean, we were, that's, if you didn't drink, there was something wrong with you. Well, that's, yeah, it was when I played too. Um, You know, after... When I started playing, you're still on commercial flights. You know, we didn't have charters, so we stayed the night. You'd go to some local tavern or wherever and sit around in a hot stove and, and drink, you know. Um, that's just the way it was. That was old school hockey. Well, and it was glorified, too, in, in my home. I don't know if it was like that in your home. Uh, what do you mean by glorified? Well, it was like everybody thought it was cool. Everybody well, was it was like, the thing yeah, to do. Beer. He, now, yeah. You know, why why can't we just go out and have uh, a coffee? Or why can't we just come over and have LaCroix um, or a soda? You know, why does alcohol need to be involved? And, um, you know, that's just something that I've learned, you know. Um, but growing up, I just thought it was the norm, you know. And addiction didn't really, I guess I never really, I don't know. I mean, I can't say I didn't start at this time, but... It never got to me until I really, you know, at the end of my career when I was going to be retiring and a lot more stress and, and, and wondering what's going on and what did I do? If I look back, you know, mom comes home from work and she's stressed and she starts having, you know, beers to calm her down. And she was also a smoker, but maybe that's why I was led that way, you know, but during my career and even at a young age, um, you know, alcohol wasn't really a big part of my, my career, you know, because I wanted to play. If anything, the one addiction I had was anorexia at a young age. And that's because of my build when I was younger. And then when I got to the National Hockey League, you know, that's when anorexia took over for a couple of years. I noticed you mentioned that if I saw you when you were 10 or 12, you'd be a pudgy kid. And I wonder whether you were sensitive about your weight even at that age and how others around you treated you in respect to that as well. Yeah, you know, looking back at it, um, because I know what I went through uh, with anorexia, but, you know, I don't I don't recall um, being bullied or kids or anything like that giving me a hard time about my weight. 
um, until I really I got to my junior team and a couple comments were made. And then that's when I kind of thought, you know, maybe I'm a bigger kid. I'm a Ukrainian kid, eat a lot of pierogies. But, <laughs> um, and I never worked out, you know, I didn't, I didn't work out because I was pushed too hard when I was younger. Um, just Sid, we've talked about this, uh, and I feel terrible about it, but I mean, I played with you. We used to call you fat kid Sid, right? I mean, that was, you know, and a lot of stuff and people made fun of me too, but it's scarring. And, um, I, you know, I've apologized to you for that before and not that any of us were bullying or being mean. We just all kind of razzed each other, but you really don't know how it affects another human being because we all just kind of hit it, right? You, you couldn't, you didn't want to show that you couldn't take it couldn't take a joke or you couldn't do this or that or emotions and um you know Sid I'm just I'm, I'm so sorry that we you know that we we called you that we you know and and um had no idea right like no idea what the effect would have that on on people when you know possibly they got older yeah um well apology accepted obviously and uh it is you know nobody knows nobody nobody knows some of the hurtful things that are said um at a, a young, young age and, and years later. But, um, yeah, I mean, those are some of the things that, you know, I went through in my junior career, even though I was an okay player, it still has a mental effect on you. Daryl, I want to ask you a little more about, uh, the anorexia, but I, I wonder, Corey, maybe you can walk Daryl through a little bit about his early skating and that experience is his early hockey experience yeah you're probably a lot like me where you you um you learned how to play early and said you were you were you were always probably one of the best players on your team am i correct about that growing up uh i don't know i was i mean i'm not one to um you know pat myself on the back but maybe one of the harder workers that helped me get through my uh, minor hockey you know, I started skating at two and playing at four. And, uh, you know, at 11 years old, um, you know, there's it, it a, goes back to a question about my dad wanted me to succeed because he saw something in me there was when I tried out for a, for a club team. Um, I was a forward, you know, growing up, but I was 11 years old trying out for a 13 year old team. And he counted the numbers on the tryouts and there wasn't as many forwards or as many D-man as forwards. So he told me to go try out as a D-man. I ended up making it as a D-man. <laughs> so, um, but it was, I was just always a harder worker, hardest, you know, tried to, I, I had that instilled in me that I had to work hard. Yeah. And then, um, you know, all the way through and then Bantam, were you expected to be kind of a, a bit of a, you were a bigger player. Did, did, did they ever expect you when you were younger to be a bit, um, of a tougher player? You know, to be one of those guys that was a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more mean, because that's, I know your personality and it's not like that, but a lot of guys I know when they're young like that, they're expected to be, if they're bigger than everybody else, they're expected to kind of be bullies on the ice. Yeah. Um, you know, when I came to Kamloops and I was a D-man at, at the minor level, but when I came to Kamloops uh, at 16 and was trying out as obviously a forward, um I was told mostly to, you know, basically go out and work hard and, and bang people, you know, and hit people. Um, I wasn't known for skills or, you know, scoring goals. 
Um, I had good size and they wanted me to throw it around. It wasn't so much of having to fight or anything like that. Um, you know, I knew one day would come if I have to, but, um, it was more, I was one that had to go out and work hard. I was there for your first fight. Do you want to describe it yourself? <laughs> Which one <laughs> was you that? Fight Mike when you Sillinger? got run over? Oh my, I don't remember that <laughs> was one. Was that your first fight with, uh, against Silly? I can't remember. I think you, I remember, somebody I think, busted your nose because I remember on the bus. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> you were tougher than you think, though. You're a better player yeah, than remember, you think, too. I remember one fight in Victoria where Jim McKenzie, I'm not sure if he ran you over or if it was <laughs> Dean Cook, but I was the first guy there, and Jim McKenzie is about 6'4". You're 16, six, right, at the time? Yeah, and he yeah. was a tough guy, but I'm a defenseman, and he just hit our goalie, so I got to do something. And uh, thank God we had visors on because I saw his fist coming from downtown. <laughs> so he must have been 19 or 20 at the time. So you're a 16-year-old. Yeah. See, and this is what's this is what's wrong about fighting in junior hockey because you got 16-year-olds fighting 19-year-olds. Yeah. What was it like for you, Daryl, that, that uh, those early days when you're a bigger guy, you're expected to protect your your goalie here <laughs> and and oh i started you, fights trust you, me you had a fist coming your way what was that like well and that's the the pack mentality of hockey players you know you do anything for your teammates whether it's going to hurt you or not and the people that don't or the players that don't you know it's pretty noticeable um but if you see somebody standing up for somebody you know i remember my first uh well now, if we go back or go ahead a few years, we had a young European living with us and uh, in junior, and we we're in training camp in an exhibition game, and one of the older guys take a take a shot at him, and uh, I went to like, hey, like enough is enough, and I fought the guy. So I just been drafted, and I'm about ready to go to my first training camp in Los Angeles, and I fight the guy, and I break my finger. Um, so then I can't participate in training camp, but that's, that was my mentality is I have to, you know, you, you stand up for people. It's a pack mentality. Is that a good thing, Daryl? <laughs> um, I, I believe it's a good straight, uh, trait to have, um, in, in life. I really do. I think you have to have people's backs, you know, whether it's good or bad. Um, and you know, whether you're helping somebody or somebody needs to know, they don't need to be sugarcoated. I don't think in a loving way. And I'm not saying, and maybe that's coming across the wrong way, but if somebody in addiction calls me and they need help, I'm not going to try and help them to get out of it. I'm going to tell them straightforward that, you know, you need help and here's the reasons why it helped me. You know, I'm not going to be a facilitator to them still hurting themselves. If I if I can just go back to your dad for a moment, because you said a couple of times, Daryl, he pushed you hard. And I, I want to make sure I didn't misunderstand that. But do you have a sense of why he pushed you hard? Well, you know, I don't know his upbringing. I don't know how he was pushed. You know, he was pushed and he succeeded in in life and and maybe that's just what he needed to and that's how he pushed me to succeed in life a certain way i 
now with my four boys, I it's not that I push them, but I try and um, do it in my way. And it's through a lot more positiveness, but um, understanding too. So you're a little more overt with your with your love along with your your drive, your push? Yeah. Like, you know, we can go back to my upbringing too again is, and you mentioned it too about, or Corey, that, you know, you didn't show emotion. You didn't talk about feelings. You didn't do that as a young kid in my family anyway. Um, and even like Corey mentioned when he apologized, like even if I was hurt, I didn't know how to show it or talk about it. I didn't know who to talk to or call, you know? Um, but I know now, like in my family, we have nothing but openness and we talk about feelings. We talk, we, we show emotion. Sometimes it gets, get, kids get freaked out when I show emotion because I'm known not to smile. Like that's just part of my, I guess, stuff that's been ingrained, ingrained in me is that like, when I coach youth hockey, like it's known that I mean, Daryl doesn't smile. Well, <laughs> I do, but it's just something that I, I, I don't know if I have control or not over it, you know, but sometimes they, the kids, when I cry or show emotion or have a tear, they're like, is dad okay? You know, it's different for him. Why don't you smile? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's, it's a, it's a, it's weird because even though I'm having fun and, and doing like having fun with kids or our youth hockey, um, you know, I don't know if I smile enough for them, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's just something that I don't do a lot of. Diane, what are your thoughts on an athlete leaving home at the age of 16 and what do you think about a teenage Daryl Sador who was a, a bigger kid having to fight men? The ages in junior hockey are between 16 and 20. And I know of guys that were 16 years old that had to fight 20-year-olds. We've talked before, Corey, about the developing brain. And like all young players in his position, Daryl was clearly a talented athlete, and he looked like a grown man, but he wasn't. His brain was still developing, the part of his brain that organizes, that plans, that critically thinks ahead and considers all of his actions and where they're going to lead. Fighting is scary for just about everyone, no matter the situation, but fighting older guys, guys that you look up to, sometimes much bigger guys, well, that's really stressful. And especially when you're being judged constantly by your teammates, by your coaches, by your fans, and your job depends on it. This kind of stress, this chronic and unpredictable stress associated with fighting is not good for your brain, any brain, and especially an immature brain. What kind of long-term damage would that do to somebody, not only emotionally, but physically to somebody's brain when your brain isn't fully developed for many more years to come. It might surprise you to know that researchers actually create conditions of chronic and unpredictable stress to produce depression in, in lab animals in order to be able to, 
to test treatments for depression and anxiety. So that kind of stress, and actually we've all lived through that stress over the last couple of years of the pandemic, and it's why we're seeing this tsunami of mental illness, is the fact that we've all been living under chronic and unpredictable stressful conditions over the last couple of years. And you can see that has an impact on depression, on anxiety, on suicide rates. So I'm, I'm certainly not saying that everyone in that situation who's forced to, to fight to keep their job is going to become depressed or anxious. But I am saying that there is a risk, particularly in these young people who are not with their friends and family. They're not in their usual supportive environment that are taken out, have to perform in what is a highly stressful situation. That can have a long-term impact. I know from experience, your teammates actually become your family. I, I left home at 16 years old and you can only imagine what I learned about masculinity with guys between the ages of 16 and 20. I don't even want to repeat it on this episode. I do want to say this. The junior hockey leagues have cleaned up a lot of the fighting. Actually, there's barely any fights anymore anyways in those leagues and for the better. And even in the NHL, there's not nearly as much fighting. Uh, however, I still think that 16-year-olds leaving home is, is, is way too young. I believe that they still need that nurturing parent. Like with our episode with Clint, a lot of these athletes, when they're young, they're so good that you almost get pushed through. It's like a freight train that you can't stop and people want you and teams want you. And it's hard for a parent to say, no, I want my child at home. I want their brain to develop. I want them to be nurtured so that they can become solid human beings. What do you tell a parent in a situation like that? It's a deeply personal decision between parents and their kid. But I also think that coaches, that teams need to take more responsibility for making sure that the environment is the best possible environment for that child, that parents are encouraged to be involved as much as possible, and that the culture set by the team is one of responsibility, of growing resilience, of taking care of each other. You know, I won't make any friends by saying on a podcast like that, like this, that I hate fighting in hockey because I think it diminishes from the game. There's all kinds of sports where there are massive penalties if you fight and you're ejected from the game. I don't think it adds to the game. And for young players, I don't think it adds to their skill, their likelihood of success. In fact, I think it significantly diminishes it. And it's it's part of the whole organization to change that culture and support an environment where that child can prosper. I played junior hockey when I was 15, and I remember there was a bench-clearing brawl. So I was playing. I jumped on the pile at center ice, and one of the officials, I think I was 135 pounds, Dan, and one of the officials grabbed me and threw me off the pile. He must have thrown me 20 feet. <laughs> Which serves me right for jumping in a pile of bunch of 19 and 20-year-olds. He probably actually saved me at that point. But thankfully, the game is so much different now. I, I can't imagine the days in the NHL where it was bench-clearing brawls. And sometimes the rest wouldn't come save you. You know, they were breaking up another fight. So you'd be sitting there getting beat up by somebody and nobody's coming to save you. Yeah, tough times. But there are other ways to build that teamwork, that team mentality, that strength and that resilience other than fighting. You can have each other's backs without having everyone's dukes up. 
So I owned it, Corey, and said, I hate it. I hate fighting yes, in did. hockey. Where do you fall, especially for, for younger players? Where do you fall on fighting in hockey? No fighting in junior hockey between 16 and 20 year olds. The thing that makes me almost ill nowadays is when I see a 16, 17 or 18 year old fighting and people in the stands, grown men are cheering these kids on to fight each other. I, I think that is so wrong. If you want to keep fighting in junior hockey, 16 and 17 year olds shouldn't be allowed to fight. If you're 18, you're considered an adult. I'm not okay with it, but hey, if that's going to curb a 16 and 17 year old not fighting, then that's what we should do. In the National Hockey League, you know, you're a man, it's, it's your choice, but I'm on the fence as to where I fall on it because I grew up with it, but I'm leaning more and more towards fighting is just, it has no part in the game really anymore. And what we know about concussions, it just doesn't make sense. Why would you put yourself in that kind of risk for later in, in your life? We've seen horrific things uh, from professional athletes later in their life because of concussions. Uh, and if that's a way to reduce concussions, then take it out of the game. Darrell was drafted in the first round of the 1990 National Hockey League draft. He was the seventh overall pick. He went to Los Angeles, California to play for the Los Angeles Kings as a 17-year-old. And it's there where he started developing an eating disorder. Yeah, so that whole, you know, that's a whirlwind of events. Um, you know, you get drafted and you're playing. I'm just playing something that I love and good things are happening. But then once I go to Los Angeles for the full year, I mean, I go to Los Angeles for a little bit. Quite young, still living with a billet family and, uh, you know, missing people back here in Kamloops. And I wasn't really playing as much. So, you know, you're kind of there, you're kind of not there. I was living with a billet family, so I was still in a family-oriented uh, situation. So it wasn't like I was out running around or anything like that. But I think when I came back and then <clears throat> moved to L.A. the year after, you know, going back to always being that bigger kid, you know, I thought if I could, you know, during that time, the OCD was there too. You know, um, you know, I talked to my wife, Charlene, about it and because of our, our son. You know, I'd have to fluff my pillows a certain way before I went to bed. I had to put my chain down into a cross. Like, I had, I had so many different things that I had to do to feel right before I can go to bed. And um, when I got back to L.A., I thought, well, if I lose five pounds, I'll be faster and quicker. You know, it's, it's that thing you just want to succeed and succeed and get better and get better. So, you know, I'm playing with some pretty great players and thinking, okay, you know, I can lose some, well, five pounds, now 10 pounds. And, uh, you know, I was at, uh, yeah, I think I weighed in at around maybe just over 200 pounds. And uh, I think at the time I got traded in 1995-96 so it's almost a year and a half I was at 176 and um, I didn't think it was a problem everybody else saw it right they see this frail skinny faced kid and I'm just playing the game of hockey trying to get faster um, but you know the team got worried some players got worried mentioned it to a trainer um, Things didn't change for me. I mean, I, I counted calories like you wouldn't believe. I knew Diet Cokes, baked potatoes, everything. What, what, how many calories in, 
and everything. And, you know, I was probably only eating, uh, I bet you I wasn't eating more than 2000 calories a day for sure. I'd say even 1500 as an NHL player. Wow. So Sid, this is one thing that I do talk about too, because I went through the same thing. When somebody drops weight like that, or there's something going on. I dropped uh, 20 pounds at one point when I was struggling with OCD with my teammates and my teammates, same thing, looked at me, right? I had a, I had a, I remember walking out of the shower, had a towel around my waist and, and Marty Jelena looks at me and goes, Hershey, what's wrong with you? Cause I was skin and bones. Yeah. With me, it was, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't hungry. I didn't have an appetite. My stomach shrunk. But going back to um, the anorexia and stuff like that, it was for me being away from home. This is the one first time that I had control. And, but that I controlled the wrong way. But that's the first time that I was able to have control and do things my way. And I still got to play the game of hockey. But, I had control of what I ate. I had control of where I went, what I did. You know, I knew I had to be the rink, but I wasn't, I didn't have somebody else telling me what I had to do. And I think that played a part of it too. Does that mean before you went, before you went off to LA, you felt controlled? Well, you know, one of the things I look back on my career and every summer was I have freedom. You know, like you're on a schedule for so long in hockey, meaning you got to beat the rink at nine. You know, every day is a schedule. And it was the first time where, like in the summer times, I can get up and work out when I wanted to. I can sleep in. But at home, it was controlled without me having any kind of input in things. With your family. Yeah. So being away from my family, now I had control of what I could do. Sid, I, I do want to ask one thing. Do you think that your, it's this kind of circling back a little bit, do you think that your self-esteem, personal self-esteem was built around how well you played? And if you didn't play well, it was kind of like, you know, not that you were a bad person, but just you felt better about yourself if you played well. And it, instead of it being built around good things around your life, it was typically built around the game of hockey and how well you played. Yeah, yeah my self-esteem was all around hockey. And it even drives me nuts to today when, you know, around Kamloops and, you know, there's Daryl, there's Daryl, there's Daryl. Like, I'm just a normal guy. Yeah. You know, but it was all built around self-esteem. And I asked that because that, that was me. Like, my hockey was, if I played good, I was, I was a good person. If I didn't play well, I beat myself up because of it. But I didn't get any self-esteem from other than hockey. Right. I didn't get it from school. I didn't get it. I didn't, I didn't cultivate it with friends and that I'm not sure why we do that, but you know, it was maybe that's, did you think that was how you could please your dad? For sure. Um, I went through that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. You always, you always tried to have that good game so that your parents were happy. Right. Don't you think that every elite athlete struggles with getting their self-esteem through their sport? I mean, you guys were your sport. Yeah. Everything revolved around hockey for your entire, what, were you two when you started skating for your entire life? Do you think that it's possible to get to your level of athleticism, your the elite level of sport that you reached without being completely captivated and completely responsive to how you perform? Is it possible to be in the world you were in and not be 
controlled by your performance in some way or view yourself through your performance? No, I don't think so. Yeah. No, I don't think so. So but it's, yeah, go ahead. I think the yeah. one thing is, is that through that performance is to have constructive criticism too. But you're so young, the both of you were so young at that time, your internal narratives, where you came from, Daryl, where it sounds like it was pretty harsh. There wasn't a lot of woo-woo, but there was a lot of boo. You, you, Why did you do that? Why did you fail? So your internal narrative, the way you're talking to yourself was probably not all that friendly, generally, all of the talking you did. And then when you failed to perform, it probably got a whole lot worse inside your head. Oh, for sure. And, but, but if I can recall my, my career and my upbringing, you didn't have that other avenue of somebody to talk to. You didn't know how to. And I think that that's a main thing nowadays. And I know in, well, I feel it nowadays that mental health is a a bigger, it's on a bigger platform right now. And, you know, coaching youth hockey, you know, I hear coaches speak and they're not speaking like they used to speak back in the day. There's no way, you know, they, they don't have that. There's, there's, there's that change of not guard, but there's that change of coaching style. Yeah. It's not the tyrant mentality anymore. It's, it's different now. How, how is it different, Daryl? I think it's different because, um, well, I know it has been different the last few years uh, with a lot more positive reinforcement. There's still some people that still like that hard mental or hard demand. And it doesn't fly with kids because kids are, are known now, at least my son is, to show his emotions, to talk about his feelings. Yeah. And it comes back. Yeah. Before, at my, at, if I was at my son's age right now, I would not talk to my parents about what happened on the rink, you know, in practice or whatever. Now kids do. Now kids understand. They're they're learning more of it. It's getting it's getting. I mean, I'm I'm just in a little microscope here in Camels, but it's they coaches still expect a lot, but it comes across a different way than back in the day. You know, Sid. So there's a, there's another thing too. I want I want to get back to the anorexia stuff and and junior hockey, and I'll just preface it a little bit with me so i still struggle because when i I was i'm a redhead and i got called ugly growing up my whole life so i still struggle with that and it really affected my self-esteem so do you is it possible that those you know when we were in junior together and is that how the anorexia kind of started that way do you think that played a big part into it for yourself like were you called that through your whole life being a bigger pudgier kid well, uh, like I said earlier, I don't I don't recall my friends saying it in elementary school or junior high. Yeah. Um, and but in junior, I do. You know, I'm I'm not going to mention names, yeah. but I remember one guy calling me Jelly Belly. He was a veteran. Mm-hmm. You know that that stuck that still sticks with me. You know. I'm just wondering, Daryl, if you actually identified what you were experiencing as a mental struggle or you were just sort of going by day by day did you know something's not right here no i didn't know anything was no not not i mean i knew something maybe wasn't right uh with the anorexia um i had my wife now that she was with me and 
you know, she can spot it. She can, she can notice my irritability and, and everything, but you know, I just, I didn't want to accept it. You'd latched on to Charlene pretty early, right? You were 17. I remember when you guys got together, Charlene's been a, the most stable person in your life. Can you tell us a little bit about her and how you guys got started and how that has helped you? Yeah, well, uh, she's a trooper <laughs> to be, you know, with me still and, and been through everything. But, uh, you know, it wasn't something I, I, I didn't get together with her for stability or anything like that. Um, you know, we, we got together at a young age and we were able to stay together and she came down to LA and lived with me there and she followed me around, um, with, with all my trades and stuff like that. And, um, but without her, um, through all of this, I mean, you know, she's been, she's been uh, a trooper. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't know if they're, I don't know what else to say, but, uh, the love that she's showing me through all my, uh, my ups and downs, you know, and to be able to still stay, uh, stand beside me is, uh, is a quality that uh, I don't know if I could have found anybody else. She obviously saw something in you that maybe you didn't see in you that she valued who you were, even if you weren't valuing yourself. Yeah. And I look back at it, you know, you look back at our families, we're polar opposite families. You know, her family was a loving family that, uh, you know, show emotion, talked, you know, enjoyed each other and, and was, was warm and inviting, uh, compared to, you know, cold and just, you know, directed in one, one way. Can you talk a little bit, Daryl, about the next steps in your journey, your struggle, you've lost all this weight, you're down to just over 170 pounds. Where did things go from there? Uh, well, I got, so I got traded to uh, Dallas, um, from Los Angeles in 95, 96, just a few months after we were married. Um, and I think it was, it was to do with my anorexia really. And when I got to, uh, Dallas, we had a trainer there that I also know he was our trainer here in Kamloops, uh, JJ McQueen. And, uh, he basically told me, you know, I'm going to set you up with this guy back home, um, I went to uh, a therapist, saw a therapist when I got back and a trainer that understood it wasn't just a, a trainer of building muscles and everything like that. Um, you know, he was, I'd say he was my trainer, my mental coach, my motivational speaker, you know, and I, I trained from, with him from 95, 96 to uh, the end, my last day, you know, my end of my career. So you know, that's where I went from there. I went from that low weight to, uh, putting on, putting on the right weight, uh, still worrying about the weight still in the, it wasn't a light switch, you know, it didn't, uh, just shut off. And I started liking gaining weight. It was a battle. Um, but I got to a healthy weight and, uh, was able to be okay with it. How did you cope? Did you, did you switch from not eating to anything else? What do you mean by that? Did you find uh, sometimes to take control or to cope? You're trying to control, so you don't eat, as you said. And sometimes people, when they give up one thing, move to another. Well, you know what? It probably what I moved to was training, was working out, you know, and then kind of under control got to not under control, but to the best 
was working out without working out too much, you know? Um, so I kind of got, I'd say addicted to, to training, you know, it was something that I can control again so I can control putting on good weight. Do you still have to watch that today, Sid? Or is that something that you feel is in your past? I, I'm not anorexic now. <laughs> no, no, no. But you have to do, could you fall back into like, Oh yeah. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm one that doesn't, uh, uh, eat a lot like, you know, but, um, I'm not, uh, it's always in the back of my mind that it was there the past, just like everything that's happened in my past, it's there. Um, and I have to look at the past because I don't want to go back there. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's always there, but I'm not, I'm not so worried about, um, weighing myself every day. I mean, I used to weigh myself probably five, six times a day, you know, and now I don't, you know, I'm not worried so much about it. Diane, when I think of an eating disorder, I usually associate it with women, but how common is it among men? It's actually more common than you may realize. And, and just to start off by saying that eating disorders are very serious, but they are treatable psychiatric conditions, and they can include things like anorexia, bulimia, uh, binge eating disorder, and some others. And historically, socially, these have most commonly been thought of as affecting women. But research has clearly shown that they happen regardless of, of, of your sex. Um, they also are likely underrepresented, underdiagnosed, and undertreated in men. And just to give you a couple of stats there, Corey, the U.S. National Eating Disorders Association say that men make up at least 15% of cases, including anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. And uh, some data over the last couple of years found that over 20% of young men turn to dangerous means to bulk up muscles associated with disordered eating. I wanted to ask you because I, I still feel terrible about this to this day, knowing what Daryl went through. And Daryl was a good friend of mine. I, I played junior hockey with him in Kamloops. We used to call him Fat Kid Sid, and I even apologized in the interview. And it wasn't that I was being mean or anybody was being mean. That they, We all had nicknames. We all had funny ones. We all had silly ones. We all had normal ones. That's part of who we were, and it was wrong to say that. Would that have had an effect on Daryl developing an eating disorder? I think that it's the mean ones that can, they can still really sting affect a little people. Bit. They still sting, and they were meant to sting there because that's why we always pick the thing that hurt the most to make fun of someone, and especially when you're angry with someone that you pick that thing that's most likely to hurt. So yes, absolutely, bullying can have a, a big impact, and anyone who has been bullied really seriously when they're young they still remember and feel badly. And I think as someone who certainly said things I shouldn't have when I was young, and I know I hurt other people, I still feel guilty about some of the things that I said when I was young. Diane, what do we know and what do we not know about eating disorders? I've actually heard it can be linked to OCD. Like every psychiatric illness, it's complicated. We don't know exactly why some people get OCD and other people don't. And the same is true of eating disorders. We know that a lot of social media influence 
lot of negative reinforcement of body image issues can certainly play a role. But like every single mental illness, there are biological factors, brain chemical factors, for instance, psychological factors, how resilient are you, how do you handle stress, and social factors. What kind of supports do you have around you? What kind of stressors do you have in your life? All three of those buckets come together to determine whether you're going to get a a mental illness. And that goes for OCD, for depression, as well as eating disorders. So we're still not at the point of going, oh, yeah, you're going to get an eating disorder. But once you have one, the good news is there is lots of research ongoing to help us to support people and get them back on track. So, Diane, if Daryl, during his teenage years, had gotten help earlier and came to you, I would have to think the chances of success for him not developing an eating disorder would be a lot better. However, what would you say to someone like Daryl if he did come to see you and he was struggling with those issues? Well, what I say constantly, and you also repeat, is there's always a path ahead. And I think when people are down in what feels like a rabbit hole, they're stuck in an eating disorder or they're stuck in a mood disorder, any kind of psychiatric illness, one of the things you feel is quite hopeless, isolated, helpless. I'm never going to make my way out of this. And there is always a path ahead. You brought up another really important point, though, Corey, which is the sooner that you get help, the easier it is to overcome. So we know that the longer an eating disorder or OCD symptoms or depression symptoms continue, the more intractable they become, the more difficult to treat. So ask for help. If you don't get help where you go to the first time, ask again, keep moving forward, asking for until you get the kind of help that you need. And the, the sooner, the better. The other thing is, if you're struggling right now and you haven't talked to anyone that you trust, please talk to somebody. Talk to your parents. If you're not getting the response you need there, talk to a trusted teacher or another adult that you trust. It's getting that help, asking that first time that can be the most difficult because you feel like you're the only person and you're certainly not alone. And one last point I want to make is you we talking to Daryl, this is one of the most decorated of National Hockey League players. You cannot say that someone who has a, an eating disorder is somehow weak because he is the essence of strength in being able to be this successful despite all the challenges he was facing. And that's true of all of the athletes that we've spoken to, overcoming these, these great challenges and still being incredible athletes. Daryl continued to struggle off the ice, but amazingly on it, he excelled. Despite his struggles, he won two Stanley Cups and played 20 years at the highest level of the game. But since retiring, he's been in and out of treatment facilities. He shared with us what led him to treatment. Yeah, so what got me there was obviously a DUI and it might have been 2014, 15, something. I can't even remember the, the year, but, um, you know, that's, that's what got me there. Um, after retirement, uh, stress again, thrown into something, um, that I didn't know what to do, uh, coaching, um, basically learn on the go. And, uh, it was stressful. I relied on once again, um, alcohol and, uh, alcohol took me down the wrong path. So yeah, I've been to treatment, uh, oh geez, five times, I think. And, uh, 
it's been a battle. When someone has had a DUI, the likelihood that they have a serious problem with alcohol is actually pretty high, as you as you likely know. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that experience? Had you ever been in trouble with the law before, ever had a DUI when, when that experience happened? No, I've never, I wasn't, never in, involved with the, with the law in any way. Um, you know, that DUI was, uh, you know, going through um, some sobriety and then thinking I can try it again. And uh, obviously I couldn't. Um, it took me to a DUI with my son uh, that was that was young. And, uh, you know, it's a day that, you know, for the longest time when I first came out, I, I, I'd get freaked out by any kind of cop lights or anything like that. And uh, I, it just, it haunted me. Can you tell us about that day, Daryl, how it started and how all that kind of came about? Uh, um, Are you okay to talk about that? Oh yeah. Um, how that all came about is, uh, I just drove back from Canada for the summer, uh, cause my son was in a, in a tournament in, in Minnesota. We just got back and, uh, I was, uh, moving stuff into the garage, uh, organizing the garage just kind of killing some time before we had to go to the game and came across and I was uh I had some sobriety under my belt and came across some wine and I thought well I can just try it right um just like a lot of alcoholics think they can and uh and uh obviously it went bad um you know got ready to go to the game and it wasn't it wasn't uh you know it it wasn't so bad when I was drinking it, but then it hit me, obviously, um, just like alcohol does. Um, and that's, yeah, that's when I got pulled over and DUI and thrown in jail. And uh, my son got picked up and taken to his game. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's haunting um, to, to have him go through that and, and myself go through it. That, uh, yeah, it's, it's terrifying. Have you talked to your boy about that day where you had the DUI and he was in the car? Do, how, do you guys discuss that? Like, how do you how do you have that conversation with your child? And and I know he knows you love him. I I don't even even question that. But how do you have that conversation with him? Well, we 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 have had that conversation. Um, we don't talk about it a lot because I think he's similar to me, where he likes to keep it over there. But, you know, he knows it's an open door if he ever wants to talk to talk about it or or struggling with it. Um, but, you know, we've I've had my amends with him about it and talked to him about it. Um, but it's something that he doesn't want to, you know, maybe talk more about right now. When you look back, because once you've gone to treatment, I know that people often gain a lot of insight into their alcohol use or whatever challenges that they're facing that takes them into treatment. Uh, you mentioned that you think this, and I, I don't want to uh, misspeak for you, but it sounded like you were saying this started when you retired and you were thrown into a new world and this was sort of a coping mechanism. When you look back, is that when you think that your your challenges with alcohol started and were there any kind of behaviors that you were able to look back on and go, okay, now I see that this has been a pattern that's been going on for some time. Yeah, I think, um, 
you know, it just didn't happen overnight. Um, and it, it was my coping mechanism, um, alcohol, you know, whenever anything, there was, uh, anything I worried about or anything like that, I would, I would go to alcohol and alcohol would push it off for a day. Right. Um, and you know, being to treatment and being through a few times, I don't believe that I got down to the, to the nitty gritty until, until I went to the meadows. Um, and it was more, um, the different facilities I've been in have been all different. Um, well, I went and visited you in Malibu. I remember that one. Yeah. Um, and it's, and that was after the DUI, that one there. So, you know, it was, it was my coping mechanism because I never, I never reached out to anybody or talked to anybody about anything. You know, I was always told to suck it up and deal with it. And, uh, basically that was my, that was my friend, the alcohol. How did Charlene cope with all that, Daryl, as you were going through? She, I'm guessing she knew something was going on or were you, were you hiding it from her? No, it was, yeah, she knew something was like, you know, at the end of my career, retirement, you know, you, she knew something was up, that I was maybe drinking a little bit too much. And she basically just wanted me to get down to it and get better, you know? Um, and it's, it's been, it's been tough on her, but it's, it's been, it's been trying. Um, you know, you don't, myself, you know, you don't think you have a problem as alcoholic, but, and you think you're sneaking it and hiding it, but everybody knows, you know, people know around you and maybe they don't have the balls to, to confront you then. Um, but you know, I was narrow minded and I wasn't open to speaking about it. But you know what, Sid, like when you say that, and I think about this, right. And we played, we've known each other since we were probably 14 years old. I would do anything today to have you speak to me before that DUI. And as men, we always think we're not going to talk to our buddies. We, you know, we're just going to keep it to ourselves. Sid, I would do anything to have you come up to me and say, hey, Hershey, you know, I got a problem. But you probably would have none have known that. And I would have never done the same to you because we're men. And we're taught not to talk to each other about stuff that's bugging us. And again, um, you know, like I, I wish that that never, ever happened to you. And I think it's a good lesson for people, right? Like it just, it breaks my heart that you didn't feel like you could talk to me. And, and, and I never felt like I could talk to you. We knew each other from the time we were 14 years old, Daryl. Well, there's a lot of people that they, I wish they wish I would have talked to, but it was, it was me. It's all me, you know, not not being able to uh to open up and it's still one of my struggles today is not being able to open up do you think the when when you talk daryl just to reflect back on what i'm hearing as you're talking about yourself it's me it's all me i couldn't do it it sounds like you're very hard on yourself for sure when you look back and you you you've grown up in a family where you know, and I, we're not crapping all over your parents here. What we're saying is, you know, some people are not able to show their love the way that they need to. And and so, you know, I don't know your parents, you know them well, but you grew up in an environment where you weren't able to express yourself in that way. And I hear someone who's gone through a lot of treatment still saying it's me as if you have failed 
when I, I, I'm sad to hear you're very, very hard on yourself still. Oh, for sure. I'm very hard on myself. I was always hard on myself. And that's one thing that I have to work on now, you know, still to this day is to, to show myself a little bit of compassion. Um, yeah, those, the past is, is ugly. I mean, my addictions cost me jobs, you know, in the National Hockey League that I've done my whole career, that I love doing. But it's a certain uh, persona that uh, it's, it's tough to battle back, to, to earn people's trust back again. You know, I, I, I see Corey's heart of gold, that he would do anything for anyone. And, and we've talked a couple times now, Daryl, and I have a sense that you're that same kind of person. What would you say to someone who is maybe experiencing the same sort of thing, feeling very isolated, as I'm sure you did, and not, maybe not even knowing what's going on, but knowing something's not right and not telling anybody about it. What would you say to that, maybe that young Daryl, that might change the trajectory for them? Well, and it's, you know, you, you hear it, and until you experience it, it's difficult but you're not alone. Like when you think you have an addiction, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or anything, you think you're by yourself, but you're not. I go to my AAA meetings and I got a room full of like people, you know, just like me, young, old, old timers, new timers. And that's the comforting thing. And that's my, that's my safe zone is my zoom meetings or going to a meeting. You know, in person with COVID, it's been tough. But the Zoom meetings, you're you're like-minded people, people with a disease, and you're not alone. But the biggest and the heaviest weight there is is to lift that phone and make a call or a text because you don't know what's on that other line. What's the reaction going to be? You know, do any of them have two Stanley Cup rings like you do, Daryl? <laughs> Sid, uh, you know what? I, I love you. And, and um, when I think of you, I think of how proud I am of you for what you've been through and who you are today and what you've accomplished. Can you look back, not even look back, but today, um, I got asked this question and I had a tough time answering it. Are you proud of who you are today? You know, go back to the, you asked if they had two Stanley Cup rings. Some of them have 40, 50, 60 years of sobriety. And I would turn that over for that. So am I proud of, of myself? Yes, I've accomplished a lot. Good. Um, I've, you know, I've accomplished a lot, but you know how it is in, in, in media and, and stuff with us is that the bad goes around a lot more than the good. And, you know, that's just what you have to deal with. But I'm proud of myself today. I'm proud. You know what? I'm proud I'm sober today. And that's going to get me through to tomorrow. Daryl, can you say what you said again? Because I think it was so important. Corey asked you, does anyone else there have two Stanley Cup rings? What did you say in response to him? Well, he started talking quick, but, um, you know, they don't have two Stanley Cup rings, but they have, you know, some of them have, you know, 30, 40, 50 years sobriety. And that's, to me, like a Stanley Cup ring. That says something to me that, 
you know, because you worked your entire life up to those those pinnacle moments as an athlete, and then you look back and you think, but man, what would my life have been without alcohol and, you know, how, how much you value sobriety as much more maybe than those successes that seem to be the only thing in the world for you for so long. Yeah, it is. And if you, if you, you know, if you think about it, you know, the Stanley cup rings are great and you have a team and everybody succeeds at that. It's a physical thing, but at sobriety, you know, you don't, you get your chips and but you still have a team and it's mental it's not so much physical for me because every day mentally i have to be strong i have to do the right thing it's not a matter of me having to go and do a uh, wind gate or that's a bike test or this or that physically but i do have to do my readings i do have to do my meetings and I have to speak to my sponsors and stuff like that. Like that's, it's the mental, you still have a team. It's my AA team, my my like mind people. I think that's so powerful because what you said, you don't know what's on the other end of the line, just picking up the phone and being afraid. And you're saying, you know, I had my Stanley Cup team, but this is my team. These are people that understand me, that get me. This is not a journey that you're on your own once you pick up that phone, it's very lonely until then. Yeah, because there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of guilt. And those are hard things to get over in your first few days. Whether your first few days have been sober for a little bit, but having the, you know, you get the nerves of going to a meeting or the nerves of speaking with somebody. But once you start speaking with a like mind person that's battling with it, it's comforting. Where do you get your power day-to-day and what's your kryptonite oh (laughs) well my kryptonite's alcohol (laughs) um my power is just you know when i first went to treatment i i looked i looked at oh okay i'm gonna be 50 years old and i'll have what seven years sobriety or something like that you know and that that was my goal like that was my goal like I'm I'm looking so far into the future of what it's going to be like that I forgot about what today is. So my power is now, you know, I don't really care about the milestones as much as I care about the day. So if I take those baby steps and I have one day, two days, three days, that's that's where I get through and get to that bigger number. But I can't look at the future. Corey, can you talk a little bit about the drinking culture when you were a young athlete? We grew up, most of us, in order to feel like a man, you drank. You had beers to be one of the guys. So it was almost like if you didn't, you were, look, I wouldn't say down upon, but you felt that peer pressure. And alcohol was glorified. I grew up where it was glorified in society and it still is and in that generation and era that's just what we did and not so much in junior hockey yeah, yeah it wasn't it wasn't like that and you know we we had our fun but when the nhl when you got there or in the minors it started to kick up and i don't know if that was because how guys handled it but mostly you felt the peer pressure 
to do it. You wanted to be one of the guys. And drinking beer is supposed to be manly. Drinking is is supposed to be, uh, like I said, it's glorified, especially for men. And thinking back, I know more guys that were probably alcoholics that I played with that nobody said anything. You just thought that's just the way it was. Were the coaches concerned about it? No, they were part of it. They they were part of it. They were concerned if there was guys drinking the night before a game. But other than that, no, they, they were all part of the culture. They, we all, that's how we grew up. We all believe that's what it was. So it wasn't like anybody was doing something evil or mean or... It's just that that's the way it was. That's what we did. Do you think there's been a cultural change in hockey around drinking? There has been because fitness is key. So you could put 20 beers in a room, in the middle of a room after a game. And maybe one guy would grab one and take two or three sips out of it and guys would be looking at him. So he'd put it back. When I played, those would be gone (laughs) in 30 seconds. And they'd be going, where's more? I think, and I don't have actual proof of this, so it's of my opinion, but from what I've heard, it's now more drug-related. Because fitness-wise, alcohol made you fat, or it made you, if you didn't process it, your body processes it and turns it into, so you have to be low body fat, you have to be lean in hockey, whether or any sport. So guys don't drink anymore. But I think drugs are becoming more of a problem. Cocaine, um, other things that I can't really comment on in the sense that it's mostly of my opinion from what I've heard. But I think it's gotten even more dangerous to those levels. More money, uh, more access to this stuff. And the next day, you're not hung over and you can stay lean. However, we both know, Diane, eventually that stuff catches up to you. Corey, Daryl may be a little bit different, though, because he wasn't a drinker during his career. It was after he retired that he ended up with some challenges around his alcohol use. Knowing Daryl and a lot of my friends that we played with Daryl, we all thought that he would be the last person to develop a drinking issue. As you know, the eating disorder and that he had earlier and then drinking adds weight. So I don't really know how to explain it, but Daryl was right into fitness and probably during more through his NHL career. So him having a drinking problem just didn't really resonate with us. When when I heard he was in a treatment facility, I was like, what? Daryl? And that goes to show that all of us are susceptible. Just because you think someone isn't susceptible to a drinking issue, or even a mental health issue. That stuff doesn't discriminate, Diane. And you know this all too well firsthand from people you've probably seen. He was particularly vulnerable because he already was struggling with a mental illness. And then in that transition time away from career, which we know for an elite athlete who's been at the top of the game for for maybe close to 20 years, that making that transition is tough. So you're already struggling with a mental illness. It it does make you more vulnerable to other mental illnesses, including addiction. So Daryl's wife, Charlene, has stuck by him through and through. How important is that for someone like Daryl? I'd say it's incredibly important. One of the greatest protectors that we have 
for living with mental illness, for enduring a mental illness, getting treatment, and particularly around addiction, getting clean and staying that way, it really relies so heavily on the kind of social support you have around you. And Daryl spoke, and as you did, about what an incredible partner she's been. And that may make all the difference for some people in being able to help them to get through an addiction and actually stay away from that addiction going forward. It might be the most critical piece. We started this discussion by asking Daryl, what was it like growing up in his house? So I wanted to end it by asking the same question, only in his house now. What did he learn that he wanted to pass on to his own four boys? My family always says, you know, if they're leaving, love you, love you too. We never had that as as a family before, meaning my upbringing. So my house is full of love, feelings, and people able to speak. And I'm, but you know, and the biggest one is me. I still have to open up more and more and more. Um, and you know, I just want them to know that I'm an open book, and I'm always there. And it's not so much. Uh, negativity but it's um constructive from what i've went through i went through a school of hard knocks we talked about family issues and then your own challenges have any of your boys struggled with mental illness um everybody sees a therapist i think it's important i love that sid i absolutely love that thank you for saying that they've been through a lot you know, they've been through a lot with me um, and just they're they're older and they're going through a lot. So, yeah, they they all see see therapists um, and I think it's healthy. What's your stance on social media? <laughs> it's ugly. <laughs> it could do it, it. You know, my 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 one son with uh, my 12 year old son. um you know, it's, it's, a uh, it's like an ocean, you know, in waves, it's up and down and, uh, something on a phone or a text this way or text that way or social media, you know, he's dealt with a lot, uh, through social media that he's seen things that he should not have been seen at a young age that happens to pop up. And, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's not healthy, but, you know, we're dealing with it. Do your boys form their own little team? Do they have each other's backs? They do. They do in a in a, in a roundabout way. And, you know, the twins are totally, totally different. But they've had their backs since preschool. You know, we used to get calls all the time when they couldn't even speak, but one would cover for the other and something would happen and he would go bite the other person. So <laughs> they had their backs from day one. And uh, they still do. They always look out for each other. They always encourage each other. And it's just, uh, it's it's great to see. I'd love to hear a little bit about your mental health now. How are you doing? And your day-to-day, are you feeling strong? Do you still have those dips in the road? Um, no, I'm I'm feeling pretty strong. Um, like, I, I don't like to get too high and not get too low. Um, I feel uh, capable right now. And I feel I got my feet underneath me. Um, but I know that can slip at any time. And I know my relapses on how it worked and how they've 
how I relapsed. Um, so I just try to take precautions on that stuff. What would you tell a 17-year-old Daryl today if you you were sitting next to yourself at 17 years old, knowing what you know now, what would you say? Well, it all depends where they are, but you know, my big thing is you just, you know, you have to enjoy life. And I think the only way that you can enjoy life is by, um, by being open and being willing to be open and, and speak. And obviously I can't say don't go down my road because my road as an athlete was pretty good, you know, but I can teach them the don'ts. Isn't it scary to speak? It is, but I, I don't know. I, I like speaking, you know, in meetings and, and stuff like that. And I don't even know what I speak about, but I just speak. And whether it's this or that, like coming in here today, I don't know what questions you guys are going to ask me. But if I'm able to help one person, if you, and you know, people have heard this before, if you're able to help one person, that's a win. Daryl, so grateful for your time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, really, thank you so much for, for taking this time to, to chat with us. No problem. Anytime. Anytime. And you know what, Sid, you did say one thing that I, that I do like. I say this to all my friends, even when I hang up the phone nowadays, male or female. Uh, I love you, bud. Yeah. And uh, you know what? Thanks for, good Lord, well, 14, so 35 years of knowing you. That's yeah, crazy, uh, eh? So proud of you, my friend. <laughs> uh, always will be. And um, yeah, this was fantastic. So thanks so much. Give my love to Shar, the boys. And uh, yeah, what a, what a great day. Thank you. Will do. And take care. And thank you for having me. And here's to another 24. 